0: Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today.
1: We're going to start today with Congressman Dan Kildee, who will preview the public testimony of two diplomats in the impeachment inquiry into President Trump. Will public witnessing convince the American people that impeachment is necessary? Then we'll talk with the University of Michigan's Dean of the School of Education, Elizabeth Moji, about her involvement with the new Detroit Public School at Marygrove and other education issues in Detroit and Michigan. That's next on Detroit Today, right after the news from NPR. Welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, it's really great that you have joined us. It's looking like another day in Washington where we, the public, are going to get a look inside the impeachment inquiry with public testimony today from William Taylor, the top diplomat in Ukraine, and George Kent, who is the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs. So who are these men and what can we expect to learn over the course of today's proceedings? We want to dig into that and discuss how these public elements of the inquiry fit into the larger impeachment process. And joining us for that conversation is Congressman Dan Kildee, a Democrat from Flint Township. He represents Michigan's 5th District. Dan, welcome back to Detroit Today.
0: Thank you, Stephen.
1: All right. So. Let's start with the two men who are being questioned today. Who are they? And what is the context of how they fit into this larger inquiry?
0: Well, today's two witnesses are uh, Bill Taylor, who, um, you know, is a career diplomat. He was the top diplomat in Ukraine. And he was the one who revealed to the investigators that there had been this parallel foreign policy channel set up by Rudy Giuliani. I mean, it was obviously... Pretty critical to the whole case now, especially the case surrounding Ukraine. The other is George Kent, who is the deputy assistant secretary for um, European and Eurasian affairs, who also described Giuliani's effort to defy uh, bipartisan support for Ukraine and, and push this political investigation to benefit President Trump. Chilling to think about these two career ambassadors, professionals, not partisan people, although the president has tried to, I think, very erroneously mischaracterize some of these people as being, you know, sort of never Trumpers. That's just ridiculous. These are career people who have seen wrongdoing, have been called to testify uh, in these depositions that they testified in, told the truth, and now are going to go before the committee to reveal for the American people for all to see. Uh, just uh, what they witnessed. And and I think it will paint a picture of a lawless president who's drunk with power and who's willing to do anything to anyone he can in order to keep himself in
1: power. So uh, one of the things that has been interesting for me watching all of this is to see how the public reacts to all of these revelations. And it it does seem as though it's not quite getting the reaction that you would think it would. I mean, what what you just, just described there are very serious transgressions of executive power, the kinds of things that the founders themselves were really worried about when they created the executive branch uh, and they put things like the impeachment process into the Constitution to try to make that a check on that kind of transgression. What What do you think is the reason so far that we don't see – a groundswell of public opinion sort of rising up against what the president did here. What? Why is that happening?
0: Well, I think in part, public opinion is not just natural and organic. It is shaped by leaders and the way they characterize the events of the day. And this is where I think, particularly as public leaders, we have a responsibility not just to respond to public opinion, but to inform public opinion. And so the reason I put it that way is, it has been shocking the extent to which the Republican Party in general, and specifically Republicans in Congress, have ignored history and ignored, have ignored standards and been willing to defend this president despite their own obvious private misgivings that they are willing to articulate in the elevator on the way to the floor of the House, but never on the floor of the House itself. So I I think public opinion very much in part is shaped by the sort of the populism of this president and his base, but magnified by the fact that voices that would normally be expected to speak up against this kind of behavior have essentially traded their thirst uh, for their own seats and their own power um, in order to support a, a president who is not a Republican in any way, shape or form but carries the banner of their party, so somehow they've reconciled this with themselves. I think, I think history is going to treat the Republicans in Congress very poorly if they continue down this path. And Of course, the effect, as you stated, is that public opinion appears to be very much divided. Their voices could be very important right now, and their voices, unfortunately, are silent.
1: And so this is the first time that the American public will hear from these two witnesses firsthand. You've taken testimony from them behind closed doors up till now. Do you think this turn toward public hearings is one of the things that might help convince the American public that this is as big a deal as Democrats say it is?
0: I think think so. The fact that the American people, those who tune in, will have a chance to see with their own eyes, hear with their own ears, these career professionals describe the president's behavior, describe the efforts of this administration more precisely to persuade a foreign government to investigate one of his political rivals. I think that will will get public attention. I do still, however, believe that if we hear Republicans trying to rationalize, normalize those behaviors, and try to say, "Well, it's not what you're, you're you don't 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 believe what you see and hear, believe what we tell you." Uh, unfortunately, I think some people will be swayed by that, but I think it can potentially be a powerful moment. Mm.
1: Um, I want you to talk a little about Republicans' involvement in this. Congressman Devin Nunes sent a list of people that he says Republicans would like to see added to the open hearings, and that list includes Hunter Biden. Um, Is that just for optics, or is that something that you think Democrats really should consider? When When we had the Clinton impeachment hearings, both sides of the aisle agreed on who the witnesses would be. Should that also be the way that we do this uh, with President Trump?
0: Yeah, but you made the key point. Both sides would have to agree who the witnesses would be. And I think the big difference is that you have a Republican Party that has one mission here, and that is to turn this entire event into a circus. Uh, This is a conspiracy theory that somehow Hunter Biden was involved in some nefarious activity, Even the Ukrainians say that's not true. It is a falsehood. But the Republicans want to sort of create this bizarre sense of equivalency between something that the president has practically admitted to already and for which witnesses have been testifying and this crazy theory. I mean, if they they want to turn it into a circus, then I I suppose the next thing they'll do is ask for President Obama's birth certificate and get Buzz Aldrin to come and testify as to whether or not we actually landed on the moon in 1969. They are willing to go down any weird, bizarre, uh, you know, internet-fueled conspiracy in order to not talk about what's right in front of their eyes, and that is a president who is violating his oath, who is violating the Constitution. And they, they seem to be willing to make a mockery of it. And we're just not going to be a party to that. We're not going to agree to it to try to come up with some you know, sort of false satisfaction that we've treated them fairly. Treating them fairly means allowing them to question the witnesses, relevant witnesses to the facts of this investigation, not allow them to go on some publicity stunt in order to divert attention from this president that they're trying so hard to protect.
1: My guest is Congressman Dan Kildee, a Democrat from Flint Township. He represents Michigan's 5th District in Washington. We're talking about hearings today in which William Taylor and George Kent, two witnesses who have information about President Trump's call with the leader of Ukraine, are going to testify in public uh, to talk about what they saw and what they think it means. Um, uh, Dan, I I wonder if you can talk a little about the questioning. Um, there's limited time in these hearings to, to actually ask questions and get substantive answers. And I think that often is one of the difficulties that you have, convincing the public, for instance, that these things are as uh, grave as as Democrats say they are. Um, what's the best method to ask the questions that will get the right answers in, in hearings like this?
0: Well, in this particular instance, I'm very please, because I've been pushing for this, there will be a different method utilized. Um, the Republicans and the Democrats each initially will have a 45-minute period that the chairman or the chair's uh, ranking member's designee um, can use to dig deep, to get a consistent narrative, to ask and answer, uh, have answered questions, and then follow up in order to really reveal facts. It is expected that at least in the case of the Democratic uh, um, time, and I assume this will be the case for Republicans, that much of that will be yielded to the attorneys for the uh, committee. Mm -hmm. So it will, I think, be a much more um, orderly and I think instructive process than what we typically see in a congressional hearing where there's this sort of badminton back and forth between Democrats for five minutes and Republicans for five minutes and going from one member to a different member. So this will be hopefully the way this process will move forward with the other committees, particularly the Committee on Judiciary, because I think it will help clarify all of this and maybe erase some of the circus-like atmosphere that we saw when the Judiciary Committee met previously. Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, Is there any way that you can imagine Democrats will not advance this process to the actual impeachment process that would unfold in the House? I mean, uh, is this a foregone conclusion based on the testimony you've taken behind closed doors? And what we're seeing now is an effort to just sort of include the public in in understanding what's going on, or are you still trying to evaluate how serious all of this was and whether it rises to the level of impeachment?
0: Well, I think those are two questions. Unless somehow there is a fact witness that comes forward that contradicts the litany of witnesses that have come forward so far, in other words, someone who contradicts this narrative, that no, this didn't happen, that the president didn't have this orchestrated effort to try to essentially bribed Ukraine into interfering in the election. Uh, unless that happens, um, I see us continuing down the path. The second question is then whether or not this rises to the level of an impeachable offense.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: this is a grave matter. This is not some misdemeanor. This isn't a parking ticket. This isn't some oversight. It's not some accident. This is, a, 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 by all appearances, a coordinated effort by the President of the United States to violate the Constitution by engaging a foreign power to investigate his political foes. This is something you expect from a totalitarian government, not from the greatest democracy on earth. So uh, it is my view that if those facts stand, the Constitution gives us a single tool to deal with a president who is so willing to violate his oath and the Constitution. And that is impeachment
1: Hmm. and give us a sense of how you assess the criticism that this is so close to a political campaign and an election in next November that that there's no way that Democrats could pursue this process without seeming overtly political. Uh, What's your answer to that?
0: Well, you know, I swore an oath to uphold the Constitution and to do it when it was easy and to do it when it was hard. Uh, I swore an oath to uphold the Constitution all 24 months of my two-year term. And the idea that history would treat us well if we somehow decided that a the, the judgment that we make, that a president's violating the Constitution, uh, should be set aside because of the potential implications for the next election, when we are more than a year, just about a year away from that election, I just think is an abdication of our responsibilities. And I think for a lot of people, it would just be a cop out. You know, we were so offended when Mitch McConnell decided just by fiat that because there was an election coming a year or so away, that the president, uh, when President Obama nominated the Supreme Court justice, that, no, we're just going to wait that, you know what, we're going to suspend the Constitution and all of our responsibilities until the next election. Uh, I swore an oath to uphold the Constitution, not just the fun parts of the Constitution, (laughs) but the hard parts as well. And I'm going to do my job.
1: Okay. Dan Kildee, Democrat from Flint Township, representative of Michigan's 5th District. Always great to catch up with you here on Detroit Today.
0: Thank you,
1: Stephen. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to be joined by University of Michigan's Dean of Education, Elizabeth Moji, to talk about the new school at Marygrove and other education issues here in Detroit and in Michigan. Stay with us on Detroit Today. <music> today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. And as always, thanks for tuning in. I want to let you know about two things that are coming up that you might want to join us for. One is a political junkies update. Uh, Are you a student of politics? You can join me and the WDET team to watch the next Democratic debate. We are going to gather on November 20th, upstairs in the Huma Room at HopCat on Woodward in Midtown Detroit. We're going to get together at about 7.30. We're going to have some fun, maybe some trivia. We'll have some beers, and then we will watch the Democratic debate together. We're asking you to register to join us at WDET.org slash events, but it is free to attend. Also, Aaron Glantz, a senior reporter for Reveal, heard Tuesdays here at 2 p.m. on WDET, has a new book out called Home Records How a Gang of Wall Street Kingpins, Hedge Fund Magnets, Crooked banks and vulture capitalists sucked millions out of their homes and demolished the American dream. You can see Aaron at the Detroit Public Library on November 21st at 6 p.m. More information on that is also available at WDET.org slash events. Bridge Magazine recently reported that Michigan public schools are now about average in the country. And that's progress, Student test scores are on an upward trend for the first time in years, but of course, there is still a really long way to go. And on top of Michigan's long struggle with academic failure, there are a lot of districts that have faced financial crisis time and time again. Are we in a position as a state to finally start trying to solve these challenges to public education in our state? And what are the major barriers in the way of getting there? Also, what is going on here in the city of Detroit where we have a new school district, we have a new superintendent, and we have a really interesting new school that opened at Mary Grove College this fall. Joining me now to talk about all of those issues is Elizabeth Moji. She is the dean of the School of Education at the University of Michigan. Elizabeth, welcome back to Detroit Today.
3: Thank you, Stephen. It's great to be back.
1: Yes, it's always great to have you with us. Um, Let's start with this new school at Marygrove, which I think is one of the most interesting developments in public education in this city in a really long time. You opened in September after a very, very fast build-up uh, to, to that opening. Give us an idea of what the idea is behind this school and uh, how things are going.
3: Well, thank you for asking about Marygrove. Uh, I'm glad you think it's interesting because I think it's one of the most exciting education initiatives I've ever been involved in. And it's exciting for a whole host of reasons. One is that we're putting children and young people at the center of rethinking how we do education and also how we develop neighborhoods. So that's really, really cool. Um, It's also exciting because it's this massive collective impact model. So many players are involved in this and at the center is the community. And so that community engagement piece and the way we're thinking about helping children and youth be the future leaders of their community is really, really powerful. So what is the Detroit P-20 initiative? Mm-hmm. Uh, we use the words or the phrase P-20 to refer to cradle to career. Uh, it's, it's to develop uh, vertically aligned... Education system. What does that mean? Vertical alignment. You know, it's, it sounds like technical mumbo jumbo. <laughs> sounds like right? something a you know?
1: chiropractor might
3: do. Exactly, to me. <laughs> exactly. And in a way, it is. Um, we're trying to align the educational experience of children from birth through career, through college and career. And usually in school systems, we think about horizontal alignment, we make sure our curriculum is really strong grade by grade, but we don't always think about what children are going to need to be able to do at a later point, and we don't always think backward to what they have learned. So that's a really amazing piece of the Cradle to Career initiative. Uh, it involves, of course, uh, the Mary Grove Conservancy because it's on the beautiful campus of Mary Grove College. It involves Starfish Family Services, a wonderful early childhood education organization. It involves the Detroit Public Schools Community District, and that's very important mm-hmm. that we emphasize that it is a traditional public, it's a school, public school partnership. Yes. Yep. Exactly. Um, And then, of course, the Kresge Foundation is an important player because they're helping to build the physical infrastructure that will allow this system to um, grow into an incredible experience for children and youth, the experience all children and youth should have. They all deserve. And then finally, of course, the University of Michigan. And the work is led by our School of Education, but it involves many other campus units. And then I should add that the city of Detroit is also uh, sitting at the table and working with us to involve the the children in the neighborhood redevelopment work that the city is leading. Um, I can go on and on and on. I imagine you have some questions you might want to ask me.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, you know, this idea of starting a public school in a neighborhood in the city, I mean, it's at a college, but it really sits in the middle of a neighborhood, is a different approach than we've seen to educational innovation in the city for for many, many years. Lots of people have been opening schools as charters or other kinds of independent schools saying that that's the answer to the problems that we have with schools in the city. Tell us why your faith is in the idea of a public school being able to do that same thing?
3: Well, first of all, I think that the changes that you mentioned in Detroit Public Schools Community District uh, really give me great hope. Uh, Nikolai Vitti is an amazing leader and he has an amazing team of leaders. We work very closely with Alicia Merriweather, Deputy Superintendent, and a whole host of other team members in Detroit Public Schools Community District. And they are, they are at the table. They are on top of things, and they are working really hard to make sure that children are learning. And that's number one for the whole district. That's powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think your point about you know really thinking about the school as a community hub is critical. That's what brought all of us together to to really understand that when we're thinking about revitalization or redevelopment you know we've heard all of these words tossed around um we need to think about education as the core of that not as a, a corollary right mm-hmm. we need it to be the centerpiece and that's what we see here i mean the mary grove campus is 53 acres it's in the middle of the Live Six neighborhood um, northwest detroit mary grove neighborhood it goes by lots of names and without that thriving campus, the neighborhood wouldn't be the same. And we really think that education has, it will, it will be the spark. Mm-hmm. It will be the spark that leads the city into a whole new era. And it will be the children who do that. Mm-hmm. And we're so proud of the fact that it really is a neighborhood school. Because even though we started with ninth grade this year, mm-hmm. The class of 2023, um, and we have a few preschoolers as well. The class of 2034, <laughs> if you want to think of <laughs> oh it that goodness, way. Right. Um, but even though um, you know we we are only building a bit at a time, those children are going to be able to really lead that redevelopment and and make um, make the change that we all want to see in the city.
1: Hmm. My guest is Elizabeth Moji. She's the dean of the School of Education at the University of Michigan. We're talking right now about the new school at Mary Grove College that opened this fall uh, as a way of sort of doubling down on this idea of neighborhood schools, of public schools, not only being able to inspire educational change here in the city, but also community change. In a little bit, we're going to talk about bigger education issues here in the city and around the state of Michigan. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. Uh, Tell us what you think about how we're doing with education right now in Detroit and in Michigan. Uh, we have seen some encouraging signs lately that maybe we're starting to make up ground between Michigan and other states, ground that we lost uh, mostly over the last decade or so. Uh, also, give us a call and tell us if you're someone who's involved with this new public school at Mary Do you have a student there? Uh, are you someone who lives in that neighborhood and is excited about the idea of that school uh, growing from one grade now to eventually a P20 kind of approach, a very different kind of approach to, to education? As always, the number on the phones heres seven seven one zero one nine. That's three one three five seven seven one zero one nine. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter, and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, before we get to, to listeners, uh, Elizabeth, I want to get you give, uh, give you a chance to talk about how things are going there. Uh, it's only been two months, two months and a little bit, I guess. Uh, is this working the way you expected it to?
3: It is, absolutely. Uh, we have a wonderful group of ninth graders, about 117. Uh, they are you know, unique because of course, they're the inaugural class. One of the things we did for this inaugural class is actually bring them to the University of Michigan for an overnight camp. Um, They got to experience some engineering work because uh, as you may know, the school's theme is social justice and social change through engineering, design, urban planning, business and we wanted them to have that experience on the Michigan campus. They also did a low ropes course so mm. they could build trust and relationships with each other. Um, they're an amazing group of students and we have unbelievable teachers. They are gifted. They are, I'm, I'm proud to say many of them, University of Michigan, School of Education graduates. So, <laughs> right. so we're very proud about that, but um, we're also just you know, so honored to be working side by side with these incredible children and incredible teachers Mm -hmm. and fabulous leaders who um, just really bring out the best in the kids.
1: Mm. Uh, You had a little bit of a speed bump with leadership there. Uh, The principal you had hired, uh, I guess, in a former job had run into some trouble. Uh, Talk about leadership, though, at the school. Uh, uh, That's one of the most important uh, that's one of the most important dimensions of any new endeavor but of course it's really important when you're talking about education
3: That's absolutely right. Uh, the our current leader Adrienne Monge is fabulous. she uh, you know it's is a Detroiter. she's really connected. The kids love her. Uh, the teachers really support her and we're just really happy that we have that kind of leadership to, continue to move the school forward.
1: Uh, Dean Moji, let's talk some about uh, the future there at Marygrove. You're going to grow this school from ninth grade up to 12, and then you're going to sort of backfill uh, from these preschoolers that you have. Um, what's the what's the timetable for this becoming, I guess, a, a full sort of P to 20 experience that, that uh, you're talking about creating there?
3: Well, uh, we're, we'll actually be launching uh, the full preschool, kindergarten, and perhaps first grade, maybe more, but um, right now we're really committed to preschool and kindergarten in 2021. Mm-hmm. And why the delay, you may ask? It's all about the building. We're building a state-of-the-art early childhood education center uh, because we believe that young children deserve the finest Finest quality uh, in in facilities and in instruction and and in relationships as well and you know space matters space can really provide those opportunities for for children so we wanted to wait to make sure we had the best possible facility we're also renovating the old Immaculata High School mm-hmm. and that will house our um, probably our K five or K eight grades. We're, we're looking at a number of different scenarios right now, but that takes time. Uh, we want to make sure you know, there aren't any sorts of environmental hazards for the young people, for the children who will be in the building, and we want to make it just the best space possible. And of course, that is thanks to the Kresge Foundation and mm-hmm. their investment.
1: Okay, let's, let's try the phones. Let's go to Frank in Livonia. Frank, welcome to the show.
3: Hi. uh, Good
4: morning. Uh, You know, I really am excited to hear about this. Uh, We uh, refer to this as mastery learning, Mm. and I think uh, one of the things that uh, is wrong with uh, public education is it's so uh, restricted by grade level and age. And, uh, you know, I think about the the old-style one-room schoolhouse where one teacher uh, educated all the students from a geographical area, like Mm. a neighborhood, Mm. no matter what their age, and they progressed at and there's, you know, and you know very well that uh, children that, you know, at uh, third grade have huge variations in their abilities between math or uh, communications and grammar and uh, emotional development. And, uh, you know, so t- when we force them into grade levels, it's, it makes it very difficult. You know, and now we're we're centralizing and centralizing more schools, bouncing these poor kids around on buses all day. Uh, so I'm really excited about this. I would say my, my only... Uh, Criticism is that we, you know, we don't want to overcomplex the thing.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, Frank, I really appreciate the call and the comments. Uh, Dean Moji, respond to what Frank's talking about there.
3: Yeah, I, I agree. Mastery learning is really where it's at. We want children to learn. We are not about just testing them and then labeling them as successful or unsuccessful. So it's it's absolutely the core of the work that we're doing. The curriculum at the school at Marygrove will be project and place-based, and by that I mean that children and youth will be learning primarily through real projects Mm -hmm. that matter in the world. Uh, For example, we have um, a group of, well, all of the students in the design thinking and engineering course that every student takes at the school are going to be presenting to the architects who are starting to work on the renovation of the Immaculata School. So the students are actually learning math, science, literacy, uh, critical thinking, design thinking, history—all of those pieces, all of those sort of basic skills and basic subjects through the process of this project in which they will be consulting on that renovation, and that will be ongoing. And then the mastery piece of it is—you know—we're we want them to learn, so they will keep doing the work until they are able to, you know, take it to its highest level for their developmental um, stage. And that's really important that we give them that opportunity. So I couldn't agree more with Frank that mastery matters. I do think complexity matters as well. And uh, I, I take his point. We don't want to overcomplexify. on the other hand, Education is a complex enterprise. Yeah,
1: and and the children that you're educating are increasingly asked to be able to deal with very complex things once they leave school and uh, go out into the world
3: of work. That's right. Yeah. That's absolutely right. Yeah.
1: Uh, again, Frank, thanks very much for the call and the really interesting comments. Let's go to Gloria in southwest Detroit. Gloria, welcome to the show.
5: Yes, good morning. This is Gloria Rivera, and I appreciate the opportunity to ask a couple questions, and I'll be brief. One of them is, in planning for this, I'm assuming that there was a lot of study done with the other schools. So my question is, how is it affecting the other schools in the area, both private and public? So it's not drawing children from several um, Catholic schools in the area to your school that, of course, would be financially more appropriate for the parents in some situations Hmm. and what are you doing to keep those schools as collaborators and and strengthening them rather than this whole one thousand children eventually on the campus um, being drawing those children from those schools and those services that have been there for many years Hmm. and the second part of my question is Um, engineering, how much attention is being given to sustainability, particularly to environmental sustainability. Thank you.
1: Great questions, Gloria. I really appreciate the call. Let's start with the first one. Uh, This idea of how many kids there are in the city of Detroit and how many schools there are is something we've been talking about a long time. There are too many seats uh, right now for the number of kids we have. Does this school exacerbate that problem?
3: It's a great question, and it is something we thought about long and hard. It it is, uh, as I started to say earlier, uh, the ninth grade was an application school, um, and we did give priority points for the neighborhood so that children and youth in the neighborhood would have access. So in, in doing that, our commitment to making it a neighborhood school was elevated, mm-hmm. but it does, of course, increase the risk that it would draw from other schools. We see ourselves as partners to those other schools. So to Gloria's point, uh, we we want to have relationships. We want to work together. And one of the exciting things about the Detroit P-20 initiative is that it's not just about a school educating children and youth, we are also educating future teachers, future social workers, future nurses, future physicians, and future public health workers. And that's through what we're calling the teaching school, modeled on the idea of a teaching hospital, where people do residency and actually really learn by serving the communities they hope to serve in the future. And what we see happening with this is that this, this opportunity expands to other schools in that neighborhood so that we're ensuring that everyone has the benefit of these really well-educated, well-prepared teachers, which is a huge problem mm-hmm. in our state um, and in the city of Detroit. Um, having access to enough well-prepared teachers. We have fabulous teachers, mm-hmm. but we don't have enough of them. Right. So that's one way that we see ourselves as partners with other schools um, and as collaborators in you know, what our ultimate goal is, and which is providing the very best education for children. Hmm.
1: Uh, David on Twitter has a question. Uh, he says, is U of M also working with any of the charter schools in Detroit? If so, which ones? And if not, why not? Okay. Lots of universities, of course, are are chartering schools in Detroit. Or I shouldn't say lots, but some universities are. Uh, talk about wh- how Michigan approaches that that issue.
3: Sure, we do work with charter schools. We are, I would say, ecumenical in our approach. Um, we don't think about governance as our decision principle. We think about children. We think about uh, places where children are being well-educated and where we can um, add value and where we can also learn. And so we do place uh, our uh, pre-service teachers in a range of schools across the city of Detroit, across southeastern Michigan, for that matter. And we work really closely with schools, charter schools, like the James and Grace Lee Boggs School, which is uh, actually was developed by University of Michigan graduates, one of whom is a graduate of our School of Education. So we do believe in partnering as long as children are being well served, we will partner with uh, different systems.
1: Hmm. Uh, let's go to Scott in Detroit, who wants to talk a little about the Bog School. Scott, welcome to the show. Yeah,
2: thank you. Thank you. Um, Yeah, actually, I I did want to talk a little bit, but uh, first wanted to mention that I think it's amazing that this Marygrove project is underway, um, in part because of, uh, I guess, the bird's eye view I've had in watching the Bog School develop and watching actually the Growth and success of uh, place-based, of a place-based environment within the east side of Detroit, Um, and I just I you sort of touched on it already. I wanted to find out um, in this school, which is started out K through fourth grade and then advanced every year until eighth grade. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted to find out how much you folks have pulled from this experience, um, or if you. Um, I don't know if if you're planning on possibly, I know they're um, uh, always the students are ending at eighth grade. They're sad that there's no high school for (laughs) the bog students. Wondering how much possibly you might be taking this model across Detroit if this is the beginning of something grander.
1: Uh, great question, Scott. I appreciate the call, uh, Dean Moji. Go ahead.
3: I'm glad you mentioned the word model because that is one of the benefits we believe of this initiative. This is uh, one school, as Gloria said earlier, uh, and you know we we see it as a proof of concept. Um, a model for how other universities can partner with Detroit Public Schools Community District or with other schools in the city or across the state. We see it as a model of place-based education and project-based education. We see it as a model of what happens when you provide the kinds of um, supports that we're going to be building for children so that children you know, can do their best work and as, as well as teachers'. So we see it as a model of teacher education and uh, child-serving professional education. So absolutely, we are um, really thinking about how through our um, work to evaluate what we're doing, hold ourselves accountable as a collective, how we can actually then share those ideas with others and how we can spread the word about what is working, when it's working why it's working and for whom it's working uh, to to really try to change education not only throughout the city of Detroit but throughout the state and nation.
1: Okay, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation about education with Elizabeth Moji, the dean of the School of Education at the University of Michigan. And we will start to talk about some bigger issues in the state and education when we come back. And we'll get to Marlene, who has a great idea about what is not going right. Here in the state of Michigan, if you want to join Marlene on the lines, 313-577-1019 is the number. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. right today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest is Elizabeth Moji. She's the Dean of the School of Education at the University of Michigan. We're talking about the new public school that has opened at Marygrove College this fall, the new Detroit Public School that uh, the School of Ed at Michigan is deeply involved in along with several other partners. Uh, We also want to talk about education issues throughout the city and the state. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. Tell us what you think is going right or wrong with education in Detroit or in Michigan. Uh, Tell us what your ideas are for improvement. And give us a call if you're involved with this new school at Mary One of the most innovative things I think is going on with education uh, in the state right now. As always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, Put your comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit today, and uh, we'll work you into the conversation, uh, Dean. Before we get back to the phones, you wanted to follow up on a question from caller Gloria, who had two questions. I we you answered one; uh, the other was uh, was unanswered. So uh, <laughs> go <Absolutely>. go ahead. <laughs> yeah.
3: So Gloria asked about um, our engineering focus and whether we were doing any work on sustainability. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to be sure to let Gloria and other callers know that our uh, wonderful science teacher, Carrie Williams, is uh, offering an advanced placement class. Keep in mind, these are ninth graders, an advanced placement class on environmental science. So we're really excited about that because the young people are out uh, conducting all kinds of projects to learn more about the environment and then to work on sustainability. So that's an ongoing project. And I think, you know, we'll continue to have opportunities for the youth to learn about this as we build an environmentally friendly school, mm-hmm. um, you know, an early childhood center, as we do the renovations. So the the opportunities for learning and really helping our young people work on sustainability are just endless. Well,
1: just the fact that you are taking the old Immaculata school building, which has sat there empty for some time, and repurposing it for this. I mean, that—that that is environmentally conscious, and it's an important reclamation of Detroit history. I mean, as a kid who grew up here in the 70s and 80s, I remember that school quite well. I remember when it closed and how devastating that was for Girls in the city. It was an all-girl school. Uh, you guys, uh, re- reusing that as a way of kind of reaching back and pulling that history forward. So that's important as well. Um, I, I do want to talk about state education issues, but to, to start that, I'd like to go to a caller who has an interesting idea. Marlene, who's listening from Sault Ste. Marie. Marlene, go ahead.
6: Oh, hi. hi. I really uh, like the sound of this, Mary Grove. Uh, project. My nieces actually went to high school there, but I would like to see this idea extended to this, the whole state. And I think that the reason that our state schools are floundering is because of a lack of funding. And uh, there is a movement afoot to, uh, uh, for, to restructure the taxes cause to a graduated income tax which would provide uh, income, not just for our schools, but for our roads and everything. This, uh, flat tax base is strangling Michigan. Mm. And, uh, there is an organization, uh, Michigan Education Justice Council, which is starting a project to change that constitutional amendment. So, mm. I, I hope that you support that. So, if, uh, we, uh, restructure the funding of schools, we can do a lot more, hmm.
1: Marlene. I appreciate the call and the comments, uh, Dean Moji. There's this long-running argument I think about money and the role it plays in education. There's lots of people who say it's not about money; it's about accountability or it's about teacher training. Uh, I always think it's you know it's a false structure for the argument. These aren't either-or's; they're both ands. But money is always an important component.
3: That's absolutely right. And in fact, uh, I just attended a panel discussion at the National Academy of Education meeting in Washington, D.C., where you know economists assured us that money does matter. So Marlene is absolutely right. We do need to think about how we fund schools. We know there are critical shortages in some areas, and um, other areas have uh, plenty. And we need to think about the distribution of funding. We need to think about the fact that um, in some places, you know, massive bonds can be raised and it's, it's really great that, um, you know, mills can be collected and, and that those places can restructure, that they can provide the kinds of upgrades to buildings that are so seriously needed. But then the converse is true that for places where those kinds of resources can't be raised from taxpayers uh, because of resources, you know, we we have to figure that out. And we have to think of our state as a system. I like to think of our state like our bodies, right? So if we thought about letting one part of our body languish if we thought about saying well you know that arm just isn't doing that well i'm just it's, it, that's it's no problem. big deal right i'm gonna yeah let it fall off that wouldn't be a very <laughs> smart approach to our our health yeah and if we could think more collectively about what's good for the state and what's good for every part of the state whether it's Sault saint marie where marlene is or detroit where we are right now if we could think about that as a collective, the whole state would be healthier. And I, I think the time is right to do that work. Yeah,
1: you know, the this reliance on property taxes, which we've done here for almost almost thirty years now, I guess since Prop A, it's it's antiquated. I mean, other states are coming up with lots of other approaches to finance education and get more money we just seem stuck with the idea that we fixed that back in 94 and somehow we don't have to think about it again. It's pretty frustrating.
3: It's very frustrating. And I think actually when you speak with different constituents in the state, I'm I'm not sure there's anybody who thinks that the funding system is in fact adequate to the task. I think the challenge is figuring out what the replacement is. And I would argue that we should look to those healthy states, um, states like Massachusetts, where, you know, achievement is high, Mm -hmm. um, you know, children are thriving, and the state is more of a system. It's a systemic approach to funding, to professional development, to teacher education, um, and to reform. So Mm -hmm. I, I think if we could follow those kinds of models, we'd be in great shape
1: certainly in better shape than we are. Okay, Elizabeth Moji, Dean of the School of Education at the University of Michigan. It is always really great to have you here. We'll have to have you back soon for another discussion about education.
3: Thank you so much for having me. It's yeah. really fun. It's
1: gonna do it for me today. I will be back tomorrow, hope you will too. We're gonna unpack the implications of today's public testimony with Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib and Debbie Dingle, who will both join us. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.